May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Don't worry. That's Jesus' advice to his friends. You know, you heard it actually. Don't let your hearts be troubled. It's the same thing. Don't worry. Funny advice, isn't it? Don't let your hearts be troubled. I mean, it's not like you really have a choice in the matter. If you're troubled, you're troubled. It's sort of like being in love or being afraid or, or you know, feeling some sort of anxiety or nervousness or depression. To say to someone, stop feeling that way, it's kind of ridiculous. Maybe even a little bit annoying. Our emotions aren't like spigots. You know, you just can't turn them on and turn them off. We feel the way we feel. A child comes in in the middle of the night to its parents' room and says, I'm scared, uh, what do we say? We, we, we respond, you know, don't worry. <laughs> don't be afraid. There's nothing to be afraid of. You're okay. You're fine. Stop worrying. Even though it annoys us, we continue to say the exact same things, right? We say the things that were told to us. Um, when I was a child, I, I, I worried a lot about the monster. You know, there was always a monster. For me, it was under the bed. I think other kids have a monster in the closet. But for me, it was always under the bed. And so I remember the whole, the whole practice was to, to stand by the door and flip off the light and run as fast as I could and jump the last three feet into the bed, you know. And my mother said that um, the U.S. Olympic team called and was looking for someone to fill in the long jumping squad had even considered me because flip off that light, whew, run as fast as you can, jump into bed. And she would say to me, just like yours probably said to you and probably like you have said to your children, don't be silly. There's no monsters. Don't be afraid. That's what we say to people, isn't it? Don't be afraid. Don't worry. Don't cry. Jesus says the same thing. Don't worry. Don't fear. Let not your hearts be troubled. But what are we going to say? I mean, we've got to say something. You've, you've got to answer the, the anxiety-ridden person, you right? Even if there are no monsters, you still have to address it. And that's what we do. We appeal to reason. When all else fails, you do one of two things. Read the instructions. Never. Or, <laughs> or appeal to reason. We feel like there's some comfort if we go back to the things that we know. Listen, here's what we know. You know, there, there's this and there's and this. We have this feeling that knowledge begets security. There's something that we can feel comfortable about when we have a little bit of knowledge. In, um, in philosophy, this is called epistemology. How we know what we know. And we know a lot of things. There are a lot of things in the world that we know. We know that um, the earth is a sphere. We know that the earth uh, travels around the sun in an orbit. Uh, we know that um, gravity affects everything. We know there's no reason trying to hurry a woman when she's uh, busy getting herself ready to go somewhere. Well, I know that. Maybe you don't, but I do. And she would say there's no reason, uh, you know, there's no, uh, no argument against saying that you should turn off Sports Center and follow me when it's time to go either. Right? So we all have our things that we know, and there's some things that we don't know or we're coming to know. We're learning about plant life uh, way below the surface of the ocean. Just starting to, to have new technology, to discover new things, to gain new knowledge. But there are some things we don't know, we aren't coming to know, and we're never going to know until we experience it firsthand. 
And I'm talking about what happens to human life when the heart stops beating. When this life ends, what happens next? What, what goes on beyond this life? Is there a life beyond this life? We've heard some testimonies. There have been some people who have who've had these uh, life-ending experiences come back and, and have shared it. They've not been exactly consistent in all their ways. We don't really know. We will know, but right now we don't. And this is, um, this is Hamlet's angst, isn't it? To be or not to be, that is the question. You remember this, whether it's just nobler in the mind, to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. You remember this, this part in Hamlet, right? He gets to this soliloquy, this famous one, and he says this, to die to sleep, to sleep perchance to dream. I, there's the rub. For in that sleep of death, what dreams may come? Hamlet's worried. He, he, really, he really is done struggling in life. He wants to kind of give up and, and just commit suicide and, and end it all in his life. But he's afraid. What happens after that? He, he says, you know, the idea of death is a, 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 an idea devoutly to be wished. You know, he's really anxious for it, but he's afraid of it. He says, you know, the whole point to grunt and sweat under a weary life, why do you do that? Because of the dread that something after death. The undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns puzzles the will. It makes us rather bear those ills we have than fly to others we know not of. That's what Hamlet says. It, we suffer because we're afraid what might be on the other side. It could be good, it could be bad, we don't know. Shakespeare kind of opens up this angst that exists in everyone. What happens at the end of this life? Therein lies the rub, he says. To be or not to be, that is the question. Um, this week I was in Akron and I'm uh, helping my son find some uh, stuff for his apartment. And so we're going from these different stores. He's moving down to Columbus for the summer, my oldest son, and working there. And, and so uh, he's getting his first apartment. We're, we're getting some stuff for that. And we're driving around and, and I see this van. You know, this like minivan, this regular gold minivan, like a regular uh, one you'd see on the street, except for one thing. It's got this huge sign mounted to the top of the van. I mean, this massive sign. And here's what it says. Judgment Day, May 21st, 2011. And apparently you all missed it, which means I'm really concerned about you. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. I missed it too. You know, I heard a lot of things on TV and radio. You did too, right? Yesterday was the end of the world. All things were over. It was done with. And I heard a lot of ridiculous things coming out of that group of people who thought about that. But I also heard some antagonists, some people who were really skeptical about the Christian faith, sort of lumping us all together with the kind of people who are a little soft in the brain. They were kind of saying that every, everybody is, is sort of in the same thing. You know, it's really, really about John, what John Lennon said. There's no heaven above, no hell below. It's just, you know, this is just a ridiculous bunch of nonsense, all of it. Which is why I thought it was particularly clever of our Lord. Two thousands of years ago, having designed a lectionary so that today's gospel reading, the day after the end of the world, is let not your hearts be troubled, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Wasn't that clever? Almost like he knew it was going to happen before it happened. Just like that. 
And here's the text he gives us. I'm going to prepare a place for you. This is a text that shows up a lot in, in funerals. And, and, and you can see why. It, it really helps us to have the sense of comfort and, and uh, security. But it still brings us to this epistemological gap. I've been waiting to say epistemological gap for a long time. To this little gap between what we know and what we believe. Between what we know for sure and what we have faith will happen. Jesus' closest friends don't get it. Thomas says, you know, Lord, I don't really understand where you're going. How do you possibly expect us to find the way? He's doubting Thomas, you know. And so he asked this question, how do we know? We don't know where you're going. But Jesus isn't given GPS coordinates, is he? This isn't about a walk that he's taking and he's saying, you need to follow me. He's talking about ultimate reality, which is why he says this famous verse in chapter, or chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Making it home to Father's house on the other side of eternity depends upon following Jesus. I'm the way, Jesus says. I'm the model. I'm the truth. That is, He's trustworthy. You can believe what He says. I'm the life, which I think means I'm the prototype. In other words, if you want to get where I'm going, you have to follow Me. It matters how a person orders their life. If their life is ordered such that it, it follows the, 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 the model that Jesus gave, well, then they make it home to the Father's house. Philip, uh, he, he offers a little bit of skepticism too, right? Lord, if only we could see God, you know, if you gave us a little peek into the throne room of heaven, well, you know, that would settle it for us. How does Jesus respond? Philip, Come on, have you been with me this long and you don't really understand that I and the Father are one? We're the same. Why are you keep asking me these same sorts of things? You see the pattern? We know what we know. But there's a little gap. There's this little gap of knowledge between what we know and what we believe. Some people have, have accused the Christian religion of being those who, who teach this, um, this theory, turn or burn. You've heard this maybe? You know, become a Christian or face eternity in hell. I don't really want to get into that, but I want to say that's not the message of the gospel. That's not what I read from Jesus in the gospel. It's rather quite the opposite. It's follow me and find life. Follow me and find a life worth living that goes on for eternity. Jesus says he goes to prepare a place for his friends. For those who follow him. It's not about dodging an angry God. That's not the gospel. The gospel is about finding the God who welcomes us home. Who longs for us to be part of His family. And it's about facing the end of life with a level of certainty that kind of closes that knowledge gap. Uh, Fifty years ago, Billy Graham said that every preacher should preach with a Bible in one hand, he'd be proud of me today, and a newspaper in another. Nobody much reads newspapers anymore. Maybe they do. Some do. But I read the Hudson Hub. It's the one paper I read twice a week. And um, But maybe this way. A Bible in one hand and your computer in the other. Or a Bible in one hand and an iPad in another. You can still get the Wall Street Journal online, right? A Bible in one hand and the plain dealer in another. 
I think what Billy Graham was saying 50 years ago is true today. When God spoke in His Word, He talked about things that are really important to human beings, things that are relevant to us every day. And you want to talk about a great news week. How about this week? We had the end of the world. Abby and I were driving over here to do something at the church yesterday about 10 minutes till 6, and I looked at the clock on the way over, and I said, Oh, goodness, the end of the world's going to happen, and the kids are home alone. Um, Apparently didn't really hold very hard in our, our hearts there. But there's another thing that happened this week. Stephen Hawking. Do you know him? Stephen Hawking is perhaps the world's most famous scientist. He, he, he's a Cambridge scholar. He wrote a book called A Brief History of Time that for 237 weeks was on the Sunday Times bestselling list. He sold over 10 million copies of this book. He's a physicist. And he wrote this book that, sold, that told the history of time in 237 pages. <laughs> he, he, everything from the Big Bang to the black holes. Well, Stephen Hawking comes out this week and he says this. He says, I regard the brain, this is a quote, I regard the brain as a computer which will stop working when its components fail. There is no heaven or afterlife or broken down computers. It's a fairy story for people who are afraid of the dark. One of the most intelligent people in the world. But here's the thing. I read that line. I thought, that's frustrating. You read Einstein, he says actually the opposite. You read Hawking today and, and you see this, really, this antagonism towards Christian faith. And it occurred to me that what Stephen Hawking says is not about what he knows, but about what he believes. And what you believe and what I believe or as equally valid as what he believes. You see, Jesus said, your life is going to reveal what you believe. Your life will reveal what you believe. This man of science thinks the ultimate thing in life is to believe that nothing's going to happen. Jesus says, there's another way. That you would believe that at the end of life, something is going to happen. And so the question for you and for me this morning is this. What do we believe? Or better yet, in whom do we believe? Amen.